Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. And if you're listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. Today you are getting a little sneak peek into all the just incredible fun we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you. We got a chair just for you. Your seat is reserved. Come join us. You will not regret it. You can find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. It's incredible. So, woo, woo, woo. This interview is so fun. I think I developed a crush today. Well, I did. You'll see it in real time. (laughs) You will in real time watch my crush developed over the course of the hour. Of course, book club, I've been watching you blow up the Facebook group on this one. And I know you've been dying to hear from our author this month, Jacqueline Woodson. Oh, you guys. (laughs) Please tell me later if I overdid it, but I was just finding her so smart and interesting and funny. And I think I just got a little like swoony over her. I really do. So if I embarrassed us, I am sorry, but I got smitten is what I did. Okay. So let me tell you about her a little bit. Jacqueline Woodson is, well, she's a powerhouse. Of course, you already know this. She is a four-time Newbery Honor winner, a four-time National Book Award finalist, and a three-time Coretta Scott King Award winner. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. She's written more than two dozen books. In 2014, she won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature for her memoir, which she mentions in our interview, Brown Girl Dreamy. She's doing all right. You can see. I got so smitten. She's born in Columbus, Ohio, and she split her growing up years between Greenville, South Carolina, and Brooklyn. She graduated from college with a BA in English, and she's been a writer her entire life, according to her, since age seven. And thank God, like honestly, thank God. Thank God she didn't try something weird like being an accountant when she's supposed to be an incredible writer. She knew where to go, and she was right. So her most recent book, Red at the Bone, is our February selection in the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And it touches on just really light topics like race, class, sexual orientation, motherhood, white supremacy. It's easy, right? Easy things to weave through. And yet she did it with such finesse and even subtlety. She's an incredible writer. So you're going to enjoy her as much as I did, (laughs) if that's possible today. I am delighted to share this conversation with just an extraordinary author and person, Jacqueline Woodson. Hey. Hey. How's it going? Yes. (laughs) We did this. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy to meet you. So great to meet you too. Thanks for choosing Red at the Bone. This is awesome. Are you kidding? (laughs) I mean, it's spectacular. Thank you. Well, look, I cannot say enough about Red at the Bone. I read it in one sitting. Sat down, never got up again until I closed the last page. It's incredible. I want to start here if you don't mind. Oh, we're just rolling here. I just put you right on the screen and off we go. I want to I want to talk really quickly about your dedication before we even get to the first page. Can you talk about that and why you chose this particular dedication for this particular book? 
for the ancestors, a long line of you bending and twisting. There it is. Bending there and it twisting. Is. Okay. <laughs> I know that I wouldn't be here writing that none of us will be where we are without our ancestors. And I have this sense that the ancestors stay with us. And so it's this visual image of the people who came before us still being in that world, being in an atmosphere, being inside of us in some way. And so as we're bending and twisting and moving through life, as these characters are moving through their lives, it is on the um, breath of these ancestors. And also given that the book is coming from this place of deep and old history, I mean, the Tulsa race massacres will be a hundred years old this year, I really wanted to pay homage to the people we lost and the way they still live inside us through our DNA and and through the history itself. We're going to get to that. I want to talk about several of the things that you included that turned out to be really important to the story. You alluded to it just now, but obviously the story takes place in, in 2001, but it shares locations and periods. It goes back and it goes forth. The time is very fluid. Did you know right away you were going to write it that way? Did you know early on in the writing process you were going to be zigging and zagging? No, because I was trying to tell this linear narrative. Oh, interesting. And I realized that I was you know, breaking the first rule of writing, which is show and don't tell. And then also that I was, you know, trying to force into a linear narrative, which that which was not linear. You know, I feel like there is this intersectionality between the years and the movement. And and so I had to go back and rewrite. I mean, I rewrote that book so many times, but- You did? I did because I had to figure out before I knew it was an ensemble cast of characters, I was trying to make it all Melody's story, then all Iris's story. At one point, it was all Aubrey's point of view. And I knew that- Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like lots of outtakes. And then- you know, there's this saying, I mean, you're a writer, you know, that sometimes the story knows more than you do about what it's trying to say. And I really felt like with Red at the Bone, it was at times forcing my hand saying, okay, Jackie, like <laughs> this is not how we're going to tell this story. It's so much more complicated than this. And so it was a journey. It was definitely a journey. I'm just dying to hear you talk more about that because I find that so fascinating and so interesting. I'm a nonfiction writer. I'm not a fiction writer. So I've never, I've never had characters tell me who they are. You know, I've never had a story show me what is next or what happened 50 years ago. So my question is, what kind of a writer are you? Like, do you, with your characters, with your plot points, with your sort of story arc, How much of it do you have on paper when you sit down to get started, even if it's not going to go that way? Are you a planner or do you at this point just know they're going to tell me what they're going to tell me? I don't outline at the beginning. At some point around the middle of the book, I have to start kind of figuring out how to scaffold it. But in the early part of it, it's just, it's character driven. It's just the voice inside my head. And I start writing down what the characters are saying or what they're doing. And then eventually, but I never know what the story's trying to say or how it's trying to say it until I do know. And then I never stop knowing. I mean, in this story, once I knew that Melody was going to be having her cotillion, having her coming of age ceremony. I knew that that moment was not the beginning. 
And so I knew that in writing that first chapter that I couldn't start at the beginning. So that first chapter is like, but that afternoon there was an orchestra playing. And that was because I didn't want the reader to think, oh, you're starting at the beginning of the story. You're not. The story is going to take you back and forth and back and forth until we get at one of the many endings. Who did you start with? Like, where did you sit down? Was it Melody? Is that who you began with? Or who was clear first? Whose storyline wanted to be told at the beginning? Iris. And I fought her. (laughs) And I fought her. Yeah, but Mm. I fought it because so much of what I write is for young adults and children. And I knew this was an adult book, but I kept trying to force it to be Melody's point of view. And then I had Melody getting much older. And then I realized, no, that she wasn't going to get older than 16, but I needed to go younger with her. You know, I needed to show her more in her early stages. I want to talk about that a little bit because mother-daughter relationships obviously play a huge key kind of through line in Red at the Bone from page one where we see Melody wearing Iris's dress and we know really quickly she never wore it. I mean, already my brain is firing. What has happened? What is going on? You really got us. You got us good. You got us early and you got us good. We had to know what had happened. But I would like to hear you talk a little bit about this sort of generational overlap between the mothers and the daughters, what it tells us even early on before we even know details about Iris's relationship with her mother and how that relational dynamic meant something to you? And did you know that you were, I was, I'm going to center some of these relationships and in all their very, very different ways. It's such a good question. And I feel like I'm still kind of trying to figure it out. I mean, I'm trying to figure it out in that it's a through line in a lot of my writing. So I think what writers are, the things that they're working through come up again and again in their books. And so in this case, I feel like what I was Coming to understand is what it means to have a backstory, right? And as a parent, and when you have that backstory, what is the way in which you're pushing it onto your kid? What of your failures do you try to put onto your kids? Or what of your fears do you try to put onto your kids and or protect your kids from? So that it made sense then for Sabi, here's Sabi completely grooming this child to be, you know, this upper middle class person in society who's going to go on, probably go to an HBCU, probably, you know, do wonderful things for the Black community and all communities. And then their only child, you know, their only surviving child. And then the dream is broken for her, right? In her eyes, the dream is broken, the end. And then you have Iris, who's a 15-year-old who gets pregnant, is like, I want to keep the baby, but she's 15. So at 18, she's like, scream, no, (laughs) this isn't the end of my life. Like, I'm going to keep going. And then you have Melody, who has this backstory of this mother who left. And so going back to Iris, like, there's so much taboo there, right? If you're a teenager and you get pregnant, that's supposed to be the end of your life. If you're a mother and you're, you know, with a child, that's supposed to be the end of your, you know, you, a mothers don't leave. So then you have Melody who wants her backstory to be, my mother left and therefore I'm a broken victim. And hers is like, nope, that's not it. So, so I think one thing that I was really 
trying to do is show all of these ways in which society has constantly reinforced this idea of the tragic teenage pregnancy or the tragic mother-daughter relationship if the mother isn't there a hundred percent of the time, you know, and it doesn't have to be that she leaves for college or, you know, it could be she's a working mother, right? And that that's supposed to be, you know, that gets challenged or or she's a mother who's divorced and there's part-time custody. So how could one allow that? And then looking at the offspring, because here when something like that happens, right? So Iris, you, one would think she's learned and she's not going to put that on her child. But here we are, we open up the novel and she's has all these hopes for Melody and her cotillion, right? Because that's right. what she knows. And Melody, you know, just like with the pregnancy, Melody's pushing back. She's like, I want Prince. <laughs> Iris is like, we don't do Prince at a cotillion. So it, it was fun to play with those ideas, but also really for me, it's learning, right? You like learn about what your own ideas are about the world through your characters. Totally. I appreciated that you allowed that to be as complicated as it was in the book, that you didn't make it super one-dimensional because you could have, you know, we've just seen so many stories about sort of in a one-dimensional way that either, you know, the mother's devoted and the father leaves or the mother leaves. And even that's flat on the page. She's a bit of a villain. You know, we love to hate her. We're mad at her. And yet you didn't do any of that because there were parts where I was like, God, Iris. And then there were other parts where I was just brokenhearted for her. And you made her human. You made her human. And I love how you weaved in the theme of ambition, which again, can be real taboo around women. You know, you're a mom and this is how you look. And the fact that you gave her this like really bright and vibrant ambition, I was really drawn to that actually and found a lot of inspiration for that. Here's a mind-blowing stat for you. Back in 1960, 95% of the clothing that Americans bought was made in the U.S. 95%. Today, 3%. So if you're thinking about putting your dollars toward more sustainable products, you have to check out one of my favorite retailers called American Giant. Okay, so American Giant is really cool, you guys. They're a clothing retailer with a 100% American-based supply chain, which means obviously every single piece of clothing was made right here in the U.S. I have an American Giant hoodie, a zip-up hoodie, and an American Giant long sleeve t-shirt. And the very second I took them out of the package and put them on, I'm not trying to exaggerate. The quality is next level. Like you put them on and go, oh, what in the world? The hoodie, it's, it's thick and hefty, super soft inside, fitted. You can already tell this is leveled up. This is a very leveled up sweatshirt. And then their t-shirts have like a real weight to them too. They drape just right. They're just very well constructed. And so for me, there'll be staple pieces in my wardrobe for a long, long, long time. Plus it's really never been more important to shop local. You guys, I am so happy that I can help support these people in our own communities right here. So you can get 15% off your first order when you use promo code for the love at American dash giant.com. So it's 15% off. Use the code for the love at American dash giant.com. 
Don't you love spring? Listen, I don't care if it's super basic. I love spring cleaning and getting my house in order, both the literal and figurative one. And that includes reviewing if I've got the best home and auto insurance for me. And so let me tell you who's making that easy for me. Policy Genius. Policy Genius. You guys, this is so in my wheelhouse right now. Policy Genius helps people get the insurance that's exactly right for them by making it easy to understand all the options, compare quotes, and then ultimately buy a policy all in one place. Listen, Policy Genius is no joke. They've helped people save more than $1,000 a year on home and auto coverage. Here's how to get started. Head to policygenius.com and answer just a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Then Policy Genius will compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, everything, to find your lowest quotes. And then after that, Policy Genius will look at all the ways to maximize your savings. So if Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. So while you're gearing up for spring cleaning, don't forget to dust off your home and auto insurance policies with Policy Genius. Reshop your rates and you, you literally could save up to $1,000. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. All right, back to our show. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about Iris and how you gave her so much dimension for your readers and you didn't really tell us how to feel about her. Mm -hmm. You didn't, you stopped short of that. And I appreciate that. You, (laughs) you let us draw our own conclusions. I'm sure you've heard this, but the readers are kind of all over the place, you know? on their response to her. It's, it's a, so it's a wide range. It is what so are you true. hearing from your readers? What are people saying about her? You know, the most interesting thing is that people really want to hate her and then they have to stop themselves. And I think the other thing is, I think a lot of the people who identify as women that I know, that I've heard from, not even that I know, see themselves in her you know, see parts of themselves in her. And I think the parts they see are often parts they haven't reconciled. And that makes them mad at her. (laughs) Sure. It's really funny. And then I find that the 20-somethings are the ones that really love her, that, you know, see two roads diverged, right? (laughs) And we've always been told that we have to choose and maybe not. Maybe both those roads are okay. I think people are surprised that Iris is okay with who she is, which is surprising to me. Like, why isn't she mad or why isn't she sad or what, you know? And then the question of why did she choose to keep that baby if she wasn't going to mother her? And it's like, she was 15. I think a lot of people forget who they were at 15. And for me as a writer who writes for young adults and adults, I do go back to that place and look at myself at 15 and what if, if God forbid I had gotten pregnant, like who would I have become? You know, what would I have done? What would my foundation be? So it's so easy to write a villain, right? It's so easy to have someone be one dimensional, but when you are really trying to get at empathy, and again, I think that comes from my writing for young people, you learn early on that a book doesn't have to have a happy ending, but it has to have hope in it that what you want is for people to see the humanity in each other. 
And what is that? That is the emotional core. So in writing Iris, I kept going to the emotional core of her and trying to figure out how is this making her feel? What is it she wants? You know, how is she going to get what she wants? Is she going to be okay in the end? And of course, I have to ask that for every single character. And with her, because her story feels so complicated, like Aubrey's story is a simple story. He wants love. He wants a family. He wants stability. And he gets that. Melody wants to know her mother loves her. And even though there's all this love swarming around her, her grandmother, her grandfather, her deeply adoring dad, like, what about this one? And that, that's who totally. we are as humans, it right? Is. It sure is. <laughs> so it was fun to just spend time with this family. I, I love this family. You know, <laughs> they just, there was no one in this family that I did not like. So I did too. <laughs> and to that end, I want to talk about Aubrey because he's very dear to us. He's very dear to the reader. I love the way that you wrote him. And it's not that he's one-dimensional, but it is that his wishes are simple. And that's real too. It doesn't make you less real to not be a super complex person. But oh man, did my heart hurt for him at a lot of plot points along the way. I'd like to hear from your perspective as Aubrey's creator, what you love about him and what was complicated about him and how you even, I wonder if you were drawing some connecting points between how we build our adult relationships based on the love we received as kids, the way that we were loved, the way our parents loved us because they came from two very, very, very different families. I'd like to hear from you more about him, his background, and how that informed his relationship with Iris and everybody else around him for that matter, Melody included. His mom, Kathy Marie, was a really interesting person for me to write. So, you know, it's hard to talk about Aubrey without talking about his mom. And the fact that she dragged him around the country, you know, always following the water and had come from this very academic place, had this son, and also carried a sadness with her that she found the water to be healing of. And and so he grows up deeply connected to his mother and knowing love, knowing, you know, pure, unadulterated love and knowing how to live very simply because in a moment you can be picked up and taken somewhere else. So that whole keep a low overhead. And even though his mother had had all those degrees, he's a smart kid. He's intellectually smart. And does not want to go to college. You know, he just wants to get a job, have, have his life. And that's something that our country does not get excited about, to say the You're least. Right. And that we tend to judge, right? Like, how can he possibly not want more? And one of Iris's flaws, because of where she came from, is that she does judge it, right? She does, like, not understand it. And I think there are so many people in this country who would be so happy to just have a job, you know, be able to make a living, raise their family or or be able to take care of their family and have love. And then daily, I find even much more now, the messages are about capitalism and wealth and and more, 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 more. And if you don't have more, 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 then you yourself are not enough. And so what Kathy Marie does for Aubrey is lets him know that he is enough. And so in that, he's happy, he's good with staying home, with raising his daughter and having this wealth of love. So when I was drawing him, I mean, I loved him so much. I based him off a 
guys I've known, you know, boyfriends I've had, I based them off, you know, the child I would want to raise, like what, what the kid I wanted to raise look like. And then I, I wanted to give him what he wanted. So he has Melody, he moves in with Sadie and Aubrey, and he has everything he needs. Because I sandwiched this book between these two tragedies, between the Tulsa Race Massacre and 9-11, when I was trying to figure out how 9-11 was going to fit in it, because I knew it would have to fit into it, given the time frame of this book, I went back and forth about who was going to be in that building. And one thing that I knew was that when 9-11 happened, like as the history grows farther away from the moment, and here's me having grown up, lived most of my life in New York City, so many people of color died in 9-11. And the guys in the mailroom, the people in the kitchen of the restaurants, the support staff all around. And as the narrative moved farther and further away from the event, that narrative was not told, right? A lot of times I think when people think of 9-11, they think of white folks dying in it. And I didn't want that piece of history to go unremembered. And so when I wrote that scene where Aubrey died I just you know I was done for the day I was a mess <laughs> like I was like he died and you know my daughter's like you know you can control that right <laughs> <laughs> oh like, no I can't he has to go but that that scene is so oh, devastating yeah it's we didn't see that coming oh really oh it was just poignant your touchstones of the Tulsa massacre and even your reference to sort of the war on drugs and, you know, sort of the crack epidemic in the eighties and then obviously nine 11 and these really interesting touch racial touch points that you included. They were profound. They anchored the story. And so this idea that you kind of were bringing up of owning a story owning history and telling the story, it came through. It came through really like beautifully and this sense of memory and storytelling and this shared lament even that we're committed to not letting just fall into oblivion of white supremacy was pretty powerful. Did those historical anchor points, were they early on in the story? Did you know I'm going to touch here, here, and here. I knew I was going to touch on the Tulsa race massacre. I knew I was going to touch on the crack epidemic. And I knew when I knew how that was going to become a part of the story, that it was going to be Aubrey at a crossroads. Because there's that part where Slip Rock, you know, drives by and he has that fancy car. And Aubrey's like, you know, I'm telling you that he's thinking he can say the just one nod and he'd be in the game. And he's broke and he's about to be a dad. And, and this is the choice he could make. And... I knew it was going to be there because by then I knew who my character <laughs> was and I knew who I was as an author and I could have slipped into the cliche of him becoming a crack dealer who was supporting his, you know, illegitimate baby. And it's like, no, this story is much more complicated than that because the Black experience is more complicated than that. So many times there is, as Chimamanda Adichie talks about the single story, how we have a single story about a particular group of people, you know, the poor white person in rural America, the poor Mexican, the poor black, the, so I didn't want to tell that single story. I wanted them to be more nuanced. And 
in terms of 9-11, I knew when, once I knew what the span was, and once I realized, even within all the zigzagging of the narrative, what the narrative arc was going to be, that it was going to be from that point of the Tulsa race massacre to 9-11, then I knew that was going to be in it. But when I first sat down to write Red at the Bone, there was so much I didn't know. <laughs> that I Fascinating. Uh, you did it. You channeled the story perfectly. I can't even imagine what your earlier renditions were because this is the one you gave us and it's the right one. So I can't even think of a single detail being either added or omitted or a character being any different than the way that you wrote them. However many versions it took you to get to this one, it was worth it. However many rewrites. It's so um, funny because a lot of times people come to the book and they're like, why isn't it longer? And, And so much of the struggle for me as a writer who's a minimalist comes with paring down language, you know, reading it out loud and listening and seeing if I got the point across in the, you know, without a whole bunch of adjectives, adjectives make me crazy. And when people say, well, it needs to be 20 pages longer, my question is always, what didn't you get? Like, what what did I leave out? Because I, I mean, curiously, and I think people just expect because it's such a huge story, you know, it spans such a huge period of time that you need more pages to tell us. Or it's like, nah, you don't. <laughs> I appreciate that. I really do. I mean, that is, that's a writer's writer talking right there. That's a writer's writer who can edit who was it that said, kill your darlings? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. It's hard to do, actually. But then what we're left with as the reader is this impression. And that lasts for me longer than a lot of adjectives and a lot of descriptive words. It's I just opened to it because I dog-eared it because I wanted to tell you that there were so many points in the book that I just had to kind of put it down and think. But when I got to the page at the cotillion, and you say, you feel like dancing? He asks me and I nod because I know I don't have a whole lot more dances with him. I know the dance card God gave us is almost punched through. And so me and Po' Boy rise. I can cry right now. I feel it in my throat. I mean, I sobbed. I had to put the book down and go find some damn Kleenex. <laughs> oh, it made me tear oh, again. so sweet. Again, the language was spare. It was spare language, but that, oh, Lord have mercy. I really love them. And I love that family and I love that relationship. And you didn't give us a lot of it. We don't have a lot of them, uh, but oh, that was beautiful. Thanks. Okay, <laughs> made me cry a little bit. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life, talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Gin Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up, 
Every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. My book club has asked a bunch of questions. I love that they ask questions. Oh, oh, did they ever? Several people wanted to know, and I, of course, I remember when I read it in the book, but how you specifically landed on Red at the Bone. Oh, the title. title. I love that question. And I'm still figuring it out. I think that the title made so much sense because it was where each of them was in some way. I mean, how it gets illustrated in the book is when Iris is with Jam and she gets her heart broken for the first time. And she just feels like someone's pulled her skin back, that she's completely exposed. And I think that for each one of the characters, there's some way in which they're still becoming. I mean, that that was a very clear moment where Iris was very much still becoming up to your heartbreak is, is going to be one of many, right? There is a way in which each of those characters has faced some loss and has also, and has had that raw feeling of being red at the bone, but at the same time is on a journey to become something else or someone else. We didn't even talk about that very interesting angle of Iris's sexuality that you kind of wrote into the story with that was so true too, because she's right at the age. That's right. You made that true to form. I actually loved that layer. And for me, that was a a real tenderizing, humanizing piece of the story that you handed to her that I loved, even though it broke my heart right alongside of her. I know. I know. Uh, I was like, why can't anything just work out? Oh man. You know, it's, she was so in love. She was. And now she knows how Aubrey felt. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing true. is that happens. And then you look back and you're like, wait, when did I do that? I mean, it gives you a sense of it's so true. It gives you empathy. So He loved her to the same degree. Yes. yes. So yeah, that was just a really relatable moment. So our members, Beth Brenton and Rachel Gibson, both want to know about that. Here's a question from one of our members. Her name was Christine Bardelli. She said, and of course, this is a big conversation point in our book club. Please tell us about all the Prince references. (laughs) Yeah. That had to have been personal. Um, that had to. He's a genius. I know. Though I know. Um, sometimes it snows in April. Didn't get in there. Which I don't know if you've listened to that song. But when we get off, you should listen to it. It's it's one of those songs. Talk about you just gonna sit 
Theron Ball. He made so much sense for the generational divide, especially between Iris and, I mean, I love him, point blank. And also with opening with Darling Nikki, Darling Nikki so goes against the grain of what the history of what the Black Cotillion is. And so, of course, she is a 20th century child. And, you know, she has never known a world without hip-hop. So Prince makes apps. Prince is like a ballad almost <laughs> to her. And, and I thought when I was trying to think of an artist, I mean, I also throw Wu-Tang in there and a couple of other people. When I was trying to think of an artist that would really set the stage for showing the vast difference between someone like Iris, who's woke, right? She had a baby at 15. She, you know, just, and her daughter, Prince was the person. It was perfect. You threaded that needle just right. Thanks. And it's funny because I had, I think I used two lyrics and I had to pay something like $60,000 for them. Yeah. Out of my what? I know. And so at that point I was like, well, maybe Prince isn't so important, but I couldn't see doing it any, I know. I was so pissed. And this was after he had passed away. So I'm like, this isn't even going to him. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. I cannot wait to tell the book club that. <laughs> You paid for that artistic yes, inclusion. Yes, yes, I had to. Wow. It used to be that you could use two or less lines and yeah. it, not anymore. Yeah, no, not anymore. No, no. Wow. But it was so right to the story that you invested in it. That is wow. I mean, seriously, wow on that. I did not expect you to say yeah, that. That's crazy. I'm still mad. <laughs> still mad. <laughs> totally. Okay. Abby McClung said this. Aubrey's love for his mother and Melody is so pure and vulnerable. Did you set out to flip stereotypes about single parents? Because you did flip a stereotype about moms leave, dads stay. No, moms stay, dads leave. You flipped that already. But it's true that also you've got a couple of single moms in this story that make some surprising choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to paint Iris and by extension, motherhood as a human thing that's complicated. And there is no one right way to do it. And it's not like I sat down to write this book to teach because that's not what, but I think that there's this great academic Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who talks about the importance of young people having both mirrors and windows in their books. So mirrors, so they see reflections of themselves in the literature and windows so that they see other possibilities, other ways that other people are doing it. And I think for me, I, I know for me in writing Iris, I wanted to show someone who's made some other choices and that there are other ways of, there isn't one right way. And the same for Aubrey, I think too often we see that stereotype of the absentee Black father. And it's not the truth. And that, you know, fathers can be loving, fathers can stay, fathers can be the people, ones who stay at home, and no one should feel some kind of way about it. So, so often it gets reinforced that if you're not doing it this way, then you're not enough again. And so I didn't set out to say, I'm going to flip stereotypes. I set out to say, I'm going to show human beings in true existences. Right. And you did. Thank you. Here's a question from one of our members. Her name is Audrey DeMarzo. And she said, there are several references to almost erased stories. 
almost erased history and an almost forgotten story. Melody is named after Grandma Melody, who almost died in Tulsa. Iris suggests that Melody might have been aborted had Iris told her parents of her pregnancy sooner. So this almost erased concept seems to tie into the generational struggle to overcome obstacles and trauma, and then the chapter about rising. I would love to hear you talk more about this theme in the book. Hmm. Good reading. (laughs) Good close reading of that book. I so appreciate the way they're reading it. Paying homage, it goes back to the opening for the ancestors, right? This homage to what could have happened. And even in terms of us here in this country, right? African-Americans were brought here enslaved. And the point of us being here was to work until we died and to make other little enslaved people who worked until they died. And that didn't happen. You know, we went on to be writers and presidents and lawyers and doctors. And so that narrative got skewed. It got it got messed up somewhere along the way from what it should have been. And our existences from that early point on has always been, to me, one that just that quickly could have been erased, right? We could have been lynched. We could have, they tried to bomb us in Tulsa and, Florida and Rosewood and all of these places. And so as a writer, I do feel like it's my responsibility to pay homage to that history and to remind myself and the readers that, yeah, we're not here by accident. Any of us, I mean, across lines of race and economic class and gender and sexuality, we're not here by some kind of accident. It would have been just that easy for us not to be here. And when you look at sperm and egg, right, we're that one sperm that made it, (laughs) that made contact with that egg and and made the baby. So just that quickly, some acid could have killed it, whatever, some pH imbalance could have made that not happen. I am intentional about talking about it. Okay. We had several questions too about your writing style because we are readers who love reading. We are readers who love writers. We are readers who pay attention to the way that you write your story. So this is from Audrey DiMarzo again. She said, I noticed the chapters from Melody's, tell me how to say her name. Is it Sabi? No, Sabi. Sabi. It rhymes with baby. Got it. Never forget that again. Melody's, Sabi's, and Poboy's perspectives were written in first person, while the chapters from Aubrey's and Iris's perspectives were third person. Were you trying to communicate something about those characters with that difference? Uh, the thing about Aubrey is he doesn't live to tell his story. So I wanted to show that early on. And for Iris, these characters are all looking at her through their eyes, right? And then Iris, because she changes so much, it wouldn't have made sense to have, she would have to have stayed 15 or stayed, you know, college age for me to really write her in first person. But she has such an arc that third person looking at her from a distance made more sense. Did that take some trial and error? Yes. To get to, yeah. <laughs> at yeah, one point she was in second person. So, oh, and everyone else yeah. was in, is yeah. in first. And it's like, no, this isn't working. <laughs> is your editor heavy handed or is this typically, do you kind of self-correct here? 
or both? She helps me a lot with consistency. So I think that even early on, there might have been some second person left in there with the, you know, third person. For me, it's read. I read it out loud and read it out loud and and really have to hear it. And it has to look a certain way in, on the page, like the white space, the pauses between moments and stuff. But yeah, my editor's fabulous. I was just talking to her yesterday because I was stuck with something and she just talked me through it. I got back to work. Thank God for editors. I mean, honestly, thank God for them. Thank God. Okay. Here's another question. I noticed this, of course, right away. And so I'm glad that one of our people asked this one. This is from Jamie Faulkner. She said, I noticed you use quotation marks sparingly. At first, it took a second to decipher. Then it became less important and seemed to highlight the message more than who was even saying it. So can you speak on this? Was this super intentional or am I overthinking? No, not at all. I hate quotation marks. I hate I them. Lo- <laughs> I really, really do. I will italicize in a minute to have someone speak a certain way. I feel like quotation, I don't know why. I, I think by the time I got to about my 10th or 11th book, I was like, I'm done with quotation marks. I don't like the way they look on the page. They're not words. The thing about when you italicize someone speaking, the brain shifts. I feel like my body just goes like this and leans in like I'm actually listening. But quotation marks make me sit up straight and kind of, I feel like I'm further away from the, it makes no sense probably, but it really makes me feel like I'm further away from the narrative. It only takes us a couple of pages to get it. You know, we're, we're so accustomed to quotation marks and, you know, the way that a, the literary work kind of sets it off generally. It only takes a couple and then I never even... Missed it. Oh, that's so I bet the last question from Trisha Harmon about this. She is curious to know that between the the no quotation marks, the italicized dialogue, and the extra spaces that you kind of just touched on a second ago, the extra spaces that you included so that it, it looks and feels away on the page. I'm curious to know if you received pushback from your publisher on your format. <laughs> no, because I explained it to them. So the book that I wrote right before, Red at the Bone was another Brooklyn, and that was nonfiction, then fiction, then poetry, all in one novel. And so by the time I got to Red at the Bone, they knew I was going to be intentional about spacing because it's you know part of the poetic form. When you have that space, it says to the reader, pause a minute, let what I just told you sink in before you go to this next moment. But they were fine with that. There's always, no, there's sometimes pushback on quotation marks, but I think people have began to understand that this is what I'm doing. But no, no, my my publisher was good about that. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, you know what? At some point you get to be like, look, I've won every award <laughs> there is. I don't want quotation marks and I'm not putting them in. So, so take me or leave me. Somebody else will take me and they will. <laughs> uh, you've got receipts. Like you want, it's working. It's working. It Whatever you're doing, it's working. Thank you. Your list of credentials are absurd. I mean, was this always the most clear path for you? You knew early on this was going to be your work. It has to have been. You're too much of a writer. Yeah, since I was seven. I mean, I didn't have a backup plan. You couldn't. Yeah, yeah. And I I tell my kids that. I'm like, if you want to do something you really love, don't have a backup plan. (laughs) Because it's like, you know, part of it is out of the desperation that, like, I know my friend Mo Willems, who writes for young kids, he was, he said, the kids had asked him, um, what keeps him writing? He's like, 
every month I get a letter in the mail. It's called a mortgage. So fantastic. How old were you when your first book was published? I think I was 19 or 20. That's crazy. Yeah, I sold it when I was still in college. And then I, I might've been a little older because I, I sold it. I sold it when I was 19. Then I had to edit. It took a while to get published. So I might've been 21, 20. I don't remember. I think 21, 22, maybe. Yeah, I was young. So that's so not normal. And that was with an agent? Yes, I had an agent by then. I was taking a writing class at the new school, and it turned out to be a class with all of these writers and and agents and editors who came to sit in on the class to look for new material. So they chose Last of Moved Mason, and that was the first one. That's incredible. I would love to hear, I promise you I'm about to end this interview, okay, but hey, so great. want to keep talking to you for a thousand hours. Your questions are so phenomenal, Jen. Thank you're you. so interesting <laughs> and your career is so fascinating and you're such a good writer. So there's just no end of it. I keep wanting to be done, but I keep having more questions, including this. I would love to know what it's been like for you. I hope this is not rude. How old are you? I am 50, I'll be 58 tomorrow. Are you serious? Yes. yes. Tomorrow's, no, the 12th. Me and Judy Bloom have the same birthday. <laughs> Not bad. Yes. That's, that was a good, that was yes. a good day to be born. Yes. Yes. If so you're going to kids and young adults. <laughs> so true. Obviously a lot of your writing is YA and I just would like to hear you talk for a second about what your relationship has been like all these years with your readers. <laughs> It's so interesting. When I was first starting to write, most of my books had girls as protagonists. So most of my readers, you know, were girls. And then I, I got more brave and I started writing from the point of view of guys. And But it wasn't until I wrote Brown Girl Dreaming, which is a memoir, that the readers completely changed. I mean, I was getting emails from 12-year-old boys and 70-year-old, 12-year-old white boys, 70-year-old white men who had known my grandfather as their baseball oh, coach. Oh, like yeah, it was it. Oh my god. It was everything I dreamed of as a writer. Like the expansiveness of the audience. But they asked me everything from, you know, what's my favorite color to how did my religious upbringing impact my writing to do you make a lot of money? Did you come here on a private jet? Sure. (laughs) Like all the authors do, just jetting around on our private planes. They're on to us. (laughs) It's so true. I I love young people. I mean, I I think that. So great. They're going to they're gonna save us, so they're great. I believe in them, too. I'm with you. Do you spend in normal world, outside of this last calendar year, do you get <laughs> a, a lot of way to talk about it. contact with your readers? Do you do readings? Do you travel? Mm-hmm. Do you, is that a part of your work? I do. I do, only because, and I realized that this year, how much I love and miss the kids. You know, I feel like there's a way in which they feed me. There's a way in which it's important for them to see me and see what I look like and hear what I have to say. And and it's important for me to see them <laughs> and, and hear what they have to say because the essence of childhood doesn't change. I mean, their clothes and their technology does, but who they are as young people stays the same. I was sick of it. I mean, I was on. I was. I was talking a lot to teachers and librarians and at universities and to young people. And I was traveling maybe two or three times a month and really missing my own family. And I think what 
the universe gave me was this year to realize how I need the balance of both. I need to yeah, get up. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Is your family yeah, driving gosh, you as crazy? Well, God, I mean, why can't they just go somewhere? <laughs> why? Oh, my goodness. Why can't they just go anywhere? I, oh. <laughs> I lock the doors. My son, I go, Jackson, okay, I'm going to be on a Zoom. Do yeah. not. Mommy, have you seen my? I'm like, okay, uh-huh. I'm locking oh, the door. They don't door. care. <laughs> they don't care. It does not matter. My office is outside the house. I'm in the backyard in this little office. Oh, no, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, it's not nice. No, they don't care. They will walk themselves out here and press their face to this window right here and just bang. doesn't matter. They see me looking at you, but they're just like, do we have any bread? I'm like, God, you're 17. Like, if you cannot make a sandwich, you don't deserve to live. Oh, my goodness. I am so Okay, last two questions. This is it. I promise you this is it. We're just curious because writers are readers. So we're wanting to know what you're reading right now. Like, is there something you love? Have you loved a book recently? Okay. What do you, what do we have to read? Yes. So I'm sure you've, well, this is the book I'm reading right now. The African look book. I think it's reviewed. How is it? Brilliant. You know, this is someone I know, so I've read it before, but it's brilliant. She, she basically has this amazing art collection of African women and their fashion. And there's so much I've learned. Like I didn't know that secondhand clothing came to Africa via the Kennedys. They dumped a black bunch of secondhand clothing in Africa and it completely disrupted the commerce because so many Africans were sewing and making money by sewing. And in, in Haiti, what they call secondhand clothes is Kennedy, which is isn't that are you serious? I've never heard that Me either. And that the clothes are like fabric, like a second skin to people. So that so if you say to someone, "I love your dress," they're like, "You're trying to take my soul." Like it's an it, so it's brilliant. There's so much brilliant stuff in there. And then of course I read "The Water Dancer" by Tanahasi Coates. Oh my gosh, I can't deal. I just can't. We've had his book and book club before, but that's the next one I want to have. Okay. I don't know if you do. He's special. Uh, do you do audio books? Do you ever listen to audio books? Sometimes. Should I listen to I've already read that one cover to cover, but uh, Joe is it worth Morton. going back? Joe Morton does the audio book and it's like watching a movie. I, it's stuff that oh. I didn't understand reading the book suddenly became clear to me. He tears it up. He takes it to some next level. So... So yeah, that was one of the ones I read. And right now, because I'm writing, I'm writing screenplays. So I'm reading a lot of film stuff. So whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes. You're writing a screenplay? Yes, I just finished right at the bone. We just we just got Cynthia Revo attached to it to play Iris. Oh yes. my yes. are you serious? Yes, yes. You buried the lead. <laughs> That's a huge deal. Yeah, we're excited. We're very excited. So that's exciting. Congratulations. And you wrote the screenplay. How'd you find that process? Because it's different. It's very different. Yeah, but it was fun. It was real. And knock on wood, screenwriting's easier than writing a novel. (laughs) I could kind of see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised. Yes. I mean, you're just more in dialogue and action. You don't have to do so much interior work like you do as a writer. Exactly. Oh, that's really exciting. Is there any chance you even kind of know when that might be coming down the pike? No, I think we're going to start shooting in October of this year. Yeah, it's happening really quickly. So that's great. Will you be on set some or a lot? 
you know, last time I was on set when they did a, a book of mine called Miracles Boys, I didn't need to be on set. Like I was just there wasting time sitting in a director's chair taking pictures. Like so I will because these are all P- Lena, it's Lena Waits company, Hillman Grad. So it's all people I love. So I'll be on set just to and the director is fabulous. Yeah. But, yeah. That's exciting. Well, that may take care of my last question, which is what are you working on right now? I guess if you just finished yeah, that, yeah. that's out the door. Yes. Do you have, is the next book mm-hmm. percolating? It is, and it's going to be nonfiction, and that's all I can say about it because it's so slow and coming. Can you write now? Have you been able to write this year? <laughs> no, my brain doesn't work I, I, at oh, all. Oh, my goodness. Just at all. It doesn't, I can't, my creativity is just taking such a hit. <sighs> And my attention span. Mm-hmm. And it's strange because I'm here. I have nothing but time. Oh, I got nothing goodness. but time I'm... as opposed to I'm not traveling like, you know, our travel life is ground down. But I sit in front of my laptop and I'm like, what are words? Oh, my goodness. What, what are What's a sentence? I know. What can I find on Etsy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're happy to oblige. Yes. Yeah. Happy to oblige. Are you struggling like finding your rhythm? I was for a long time. I have it now, but I think it was also because I was working on screenplays and novels and, you know, this nonfiction. I finished a picture book, but during a regular year, you know, from 7.30 to 4, for me, my house is empty. You know, there's not going to be anyone knocking on my door and my attention span's not going to. So it took a moment and I, I had to kind of just revamp how I think about creating. But yeah, it's been yeah, a struggle. Yeah, totally. Here's how I revamped it. The project that I'm working on right now, because I write exclusively nonfiction, is a cookbook. Because you know what I can handle right now? I can chop an onion <laughs> and then I can write about it in a funny way. So I'm writing like a funny, absurd cookbook. And it's the one place where my creativity is like, let's do this. And so I, I cook food in the middle of the day and I call it work. Yes. And so yes. it's work. I mean, That's I feel like I've brilliant. stumbled on the secret. I know it is, right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, so maybe next year my brain will return and I can write something of real substance. <laughs> but for right now, it's like chicken pot pie. Oh, man. Uh, I so. love cookbooks, so I will be buying it. Okay, I'll send you one. Okay, well, we are absolute devoted fans and readers. So you got a whole group of us now. You'll never get rid of us. Thank you. And we just absolutely, we went bonkers. Thank you. Absolutely bonkers. So thanks for being awesome. Thanks for doing what you do. I know how much work it is. Uh, I know you do. I do. Thanks so so much. much. It's such a labor. But we're grateful readers for it. So thank you, Jen. Give you all my love from Texas. Oh, back at you from Brewster, New York. Yes. Yes, you too. Bye. Thank you, Jen.